Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. So we're going to begin um, the book of Shemot. Alex has asked for a, a quick recap um, of what's happened. So Yosef meets his brothers who come down because of the famine happening in Canaan. And they come down, as was often the case when there was famine in Canaan. People pushed into northern Egypt um, in order to become either itinerant workers uh, to work for food and or to trade for food. Uh, and this is what happens with uh, Yosef's family. Yosef sets up a ruse by which to have the brothers bring Benjamin down to Egypt because Jacob kept Benjamin because he was afraid something might happen to him. <clears throat> so Joseph sets up a ruse by which Benjamin has to come to Egypt. <clears throat> and during his encounter with the family, um, Sarah tells us three times Yosef had to leave the room and weep. He was so moved by, you know, dealing with his brothers and then they come around and they prove that they have changed by not being willing to sacrifice one of their own. They offer their own lives instead. And so um, they prove to Yosef that they have changed. And he then comes out to them as their brother. Um, there's a wonderful article essay in the book Torah Queries about this moment of um, Yosef coming out of, of the closet to his brothers. Uh, and um, it's a very dramatic revelation. And uh, then the the whole family comes down. So they bring Yaakov, they bring Jacob down, and everyone settles in Goshen, settles in Egypt, uh, until we get uh, Yaakov's deathbed scene where he blesses Yosef's two sons. Um, it's an interesting, odd part of Torah because he doesn't seem to recognize the two boys. So now that he's living in Egypt, you would think if he was close with Yosef, that he would recognize his grandsons. Um, but he says, who are these when Yosef brings them? So it is possible that um, they sort of remain estranged, that those 22 years that Yosef and Yaakov didn't talk, that even when he comes down, there's kind of this distance uh, between them. Uh, but in any case, the family comes down and they um, they flourish in Egypt and uh, under Joseph's care. Um, all of Egypt survives, of course, the famine. But because um, of Yosef's uh, economic policies, the people of Egypt are impoverished and sell much of their land and their holdings to the crown, to Pharaoh. So uh, that is the situation at the end of the book of Breshit, at the end of the book of Genesis. And so now we begin uh, the book of Exodus, and we're going to begin um, what is, of course, what we had before was the family stories, the patriarchal and matriarchal um, foundation stories of our people and now we move into the foundation story of the nation um, of Israel, right? So we had the, the family of Avram and Sarai um, and its history. And now we have the story of our people, the founding of the nation as a people. And um, in the words of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, the book of Exodus, much like the book of Genesis, opens in pervasive darkness Genesis describes the earth as unformed and void with darkness over the surface of the deep. In Exodus, darkness attends the ascension of a new Pharaoh who feared the Israelites and so enslaved them. God alone lights the way out of the darkness in Genesis, but in Exodus, God has many partners, first among them, five brave women. Ruth Bader Ginsburg just wrote that? She did. So, um, so that is where that is exactly what's going to happen. We are starting the uh, again, we're starting in darkness, as Justice Ginsburg of Blessed Memory points out. Um, and in Bereshit, what brings us out of that is Vaihi Or. God says, you know, I 
let their let light exist. Uh, and now we're going to start in pervasive darkness in the book of Shmot. Um, but it's going to be God's partners who help light the way out of it. And God's partners are female. Um, and one of the reasons I picked this text to do this morning is because, frankly, I just needed it. Um, I really just needed this this text, this particular part of of Exodus um, as we begin the first, you know, three chapters. It really just felt like, okay, given where we are, given what's happening in our world, um, I just felt like, yes, we we need this text. Okay, so I'm going to share my screen. We are at uh, Exodus. One, Elish Mopene Israel Haba Imitraima. These are the names of the folks who came down to Egypt. And then we get their names delineated, right? Okay. Um, so we get their names delide- delineated. Um, so who are these people being named? These are the sons of Yaakov. Yes. Okay. Bayamat Yosef. The Kolechav. And so Yosef and all of his brothers die. All of that generation. Uvine Israel paru v'yishritzu v'yirbu v'yatzmu b'ma'od ma'od. So the people of Israel were fruitful and they swarmed and they multiplied. This, for some scholars, takes us right back to the language of Breshit. This takes us right back to the language of Genesis. Right? The first command to um, Adam is pru orvu, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So we are getting the fulfillment of Breshi, of Genesis, in the condition of what's happening to the people Israel in Mitraim, in Egypt. So there arose a new king in Egypt, who did not know Yosef. So there are some scholars who want to say, this cannot mean literally the Pharaoh didn't know Joseph. How could a Pharaoh of Egypt possibly not know, right, of the guy who saved them from famine? There's just, it's unlikely that a Pharaoh wouldn't have known Yosef. So a lot of commentators want to say the king on purpose sets aside knowledge of Yosef, right? So on purpose, doesn't want to know, right? Start Turns away from the history of how Yosef helped Egypt survive. Um, turns away from that, that knowledge, that understanding, that relationship to the descendants of Yosef. Okay, whatever the case, we have a king who either doesn't know or chooses not to know, right, about Yosef and the relationship to Yosef's descendants. Vayomer el Amo and says to his people, meaning Pharaoh's people, Hine ambene Israel rav mimenu. Lo, yo, the people Israel, am bene Israel, the nation of the people of Israel, the nation of the descendants of Israel are many, right? And bigger in number than we are. This is the first time that we get the expression, Am B'nai Israel. This is the first time we get the identification of B'nai Israel, the descendants of Israel as an Am, as a people, as a nation. And who is the one who identifies us as a nation for the first time in Torah? An anti-Semite, Pharaoh. The anti-Semite is the first one to identify us as a people, right? This continues to be right the, the case um, throughout Jewish history. We are often defined by the enemy, the oppressor. Who's a Jew? It was Hitler and his people who decided who's a Jew, right? So this is not uncommon, but it um, it begins as early as Torah, that we are first identified as the Jewish people by Pharaoh. So Pharaoh says, okay, if, if this is the case, that they are multiplying and they're becoming, you know, kind of successful in multiplying, well, that could be dangerous for us. 
So they could make war on us, right? And so that that's not acceptable. So they set uh, officers to afflict the people of Israel with burdens, and they built storage cities for Pharaoh, Pitom, and Ramses. So these are the, the storehouse cities. Notice what it does not say we built. Pyramids. Okay? So let's just be clear. Pyramids. The Jews did not build the pyramids, right? That was forced labor on the Egyptian people. Like we, not even we have a story that says we built the pyramids, okay? Um, that was specialized labor. Um, this is regular old schleppage labor of building storehouse cities for the wealth of Egypt. Um, uh, Pete Omid Ramses, there's plenty in the archaeological record exploring this. Who's the pharaoh we're talking about? When were those cities built? Blah, blah, blah. So if you, you can happily spend days researching this. Um, but they're they're forced into national servitude. Um, and, right, it's not easy work. Um, but even as they were afflicted, they still, right, they still were successful in multiplying. So they made the people of the descendants of Israel subservient with crushing labor, right? So they made them, uh, they pressed them into service. They embittered their lives with hard service, right? Look at this verb, they bitterfied their lives. Recognize anything about that word? Aha, that's right, Harvey. Maror. Maror. They, they marored the people's lives, right? So that's what's on the Seder plate is the maror. Um, all right. So notice what, what is being embittered? Chayehem. Their lives. Okay. Chayehem. We're going to see this, this word again. Ba'avodakasha with hard labor. Um, right. And um, and so the king of Egypt says to whom? How would we translate this? This is a pretty good translation. The midwives of the Hebrews. So the big question here is, are these Hebrew women or are they Egyptian midwives serving the Hebrew population? It doesn't say Hebrew midwives in the Hebrew. But it doesn't say Egypt. The Hebrew midwives, meet, but that could mean the midwives of the Hebrews, because you would call them the Hebrew midwives, the ones assigned to the Hebrews. So that could mean they're Egyptian. Or is it the Hebrew midwives, that they are the midwives who serve their population? So. An argument for these being Egyptian women is why would Pharaoh expect Hebrew midwives to be ready to be complicit in the murder of Hebrew babies? That wouldn't be a very smart, you know, ally <laughs> to rely on is Hebrew midwives to do his dirty work. Then it says when you deliver the Hebrew women, so when you deliver to the, the Hebrew women, it, it's, it's so it's. Right, not your women, but the Hebrew women. So possibly, meaning women who are different from you. Um, also, you know, Pharaoh calling into into Pharaoh's presence, slave midwives, also doesn't seem exactly like something Pharaoh would do. It's very possible the 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 role of midwife was seen as a very important role. Um, we have evidence of that. That they they used magic and ritual and all of that kind of stuff to protect babies as they're being born. So possibly they were seen as 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 powerful. They are life bringers. They are life givers. So it's for for this word again about right um about about giving and protecting life. So um so that may be another argument for them being Egyptian. Um we we just don't know. I, of course, like the version that they are, in fact, Egyptian, um, because there's something powerful about the the people called to the oppressor to, you know, enforce 
those laws that are now going into effect, um, that, that it is they who ally themselves instead with the Hebrew women and refuse to do that. Um, but you mentioned before this was the first use of Am Yisrael. Mm-hmm. Are they called Ivrim or Hebrews before this? Um, the beginning of calling them Hebrews? Avram is identified as Ivri. Yeah. Um, but I'm not sure the plural for the people is used of Ivrim. Um, those who cross over is one interpretation of that, right? Lavor, to cross over. So the ones who have crossed over. Yeah, Damon? No, I, I can't help but think of, the, of what uh, Joseph did initially with the land and, and by getting back to Pharaoh and the ideas of the Jubilee will come later on. And it's it's almost there's kind of a new angle. Well, the concept, it's obviously something new, yeah. But it's almost like if the system is kind of working for you, but it's an oppressive system, which is what happens with Joseph, you know, don't be so sure that you know that the system can work against you too, because you have to ask. Why did they stay so long? They were just supposed to come down to the famine, get the grain, and then go back. But they, they probably, for the first hundred years or so, had it great under an impressive system, and they kind of got used to it, and they forgot where they came from, and they were comfortable, and, and, and you know, the wheel turned, and here we are. So you, it's, it's, uh, it's sort of more of a cautionary tale than I originally uh, so beautiful. I, I think later on with the jubilee, it's almost like don't, even if it works in your favor to hold on to your land, don't do it because it's going to. You may, you know, it's gonna, it's gonna go bad eventually. Um, and uh, and it's it's sort of uh, you know very common in Jewish history that things are great, you know, and they think they can't possibly go wrong, and and they and. Um, you know, you forget who you are, and then you get stuck, and then you have this situation. Beautiful, David. I couldn't articulate better uh, an advertisement for why we continue to study the same story over and over and over, because turn it and turn it for everything's in it, right? Because we see something different every time we come to it, so I really appreciate that. You know, there's this whole idea that it's really an internal revolution, and that there's no, that, uh, that whole thing that we've talked about a lot. Um, it's almost like the archetype that they're fighting against um, with the, that the law later to come in the desert is pushing against is the archetype. So, right. Don't have one of these. Don't have so, a game. So Jubilee says, you know, the whole, that whole Yovel um, system that you just said, you know, even though it's working for you to hang on to your land, don't. It's stronger than that. It's you're not allowed to hang on to your land. You're not allowed to become Joseph. The system will be such in the Holy Land that you will build a society where you are not able to become Yosef. It's a reaction. They're almost like the law is almost, you can feel that it's still traumatized by those 400 years. Right. And it's a reaction to it. Right. So the folks who, who wrote the legislation, who were building a society based on what they understood justice to be about, are very keenly aware that... We are formed by a system where it was used against us at some point. And this has been Jewish history, like you said, like ever since, right? It, you know, in, in Vienna, in Berlin, it's like it couldn't happen here, right? Not, it's not possible that it could happen here because we have it so good, right? So it's all right. So, um, so that we get the names here. So we got who did we have named about who went down to Egypt? All we had was the names of men. men. That's all we have. Until we come to this edict, and then we get the midwives who are going to fight against Pharaoh's edict. They are here named. Right? Ahat Shifra. One is Shifra, the Shema Shenit, and the name of the second one, Pua. So these are the names of the midwives, Shifra and Pua. Egyptian names. So we're not sure. Um, there, there is a way to understand their names as a uh, derivative of uh, some Hebrew, and there's a way to understand it um, also a little bit uh, in um, Egyptian. So Jonathan Sachs, um, 
points out that um, shafar means to be pleasing, predominantly to the eye. So that could be the root of shifra, that she finds babies to be beautiful. Um, and pu'a, to cry out or to groan. So possibly someone whose job it is to attend to women who are crying out in labor. Um, maybe she's soothing the cries of babies. Sounds um, like the guy who wrote this picked those names. No, it's right. It's it's very possible that that's an argument for them being Hebrew. Um, you know, so uh, now, so so Pharaoh has called the midwives to what we get here, um, right? When you deliver the Hebrew women and you see on the birthing stone, what you're to look and see on the birthing stone in Ben. If it's a boy, if it's a son, right? What happens? Hemtinato, kill him. If it, but, but if it's a bat, if it's a daughter, he, um, bahaya. Notice again, this word, chaya, right? She shall live. So again, this whole thing about life, right? Life giving, life givers, life bringers, the protectors of life, the living into, right? Into life. And we're going to see it some more. Um, all right, so that's what that's what Pharaoh decrees to the midwives. When you deliver the Hebrew women, you're going to look on the birthing stool, see if it's a male, then you kill it. If not, if it's a girl, you can let it live. Why? Why doesn't Pharaoh just have soldiers at each house it's delivering? Why call them midwives? If he had soldiers, it would be in a war. This is ah. So if if he had soldiers, it would mean war but you've got an enslaved population who presumably aren't armed like if your soldiers are armed but you're on the right track but what would it mean if there were soldiers at the door and they're killing boy babies that's different from what's happening here what is pharaoh attempting here to sneak it in so clearly pharaoh doesn't want to openly declare his war against the people, right? So this is what many scholars say. This is how it always starts. If you want to do it well and get away with it, this is how it starts. It starts in secret and it starts with bringing in, you know, allies under the radar. It starts with dog whistles from the stage to the crowd, right? It starts subtle. Because if you come on too strong and you come out too strong, what you're risking is rebellion. You're risking outright challenge from the population, which we've been told is quite numerous. So even though they're under the thumb of the government, you're risking, right? You're risking rebellion. You're risking fomenting resistance. But if you sneak it in and you start quietly and that spreads and it spreads and it spreads, this is how you can successfully oppress a people right? and and change the relationship of the population to that people. Why kill the boys and not the girls when the boys theoretically could grow up to be strong workers. So physically strong. That's a great question. Why kill why not kill the girls, the kill ones them. who will give birth? Kill them both. You kill them all. Well, if you kill them all, now you're risking sure. now you're risking, I think, you know, oh, right, rebellion, resistance. Um uh so Mehmet, do you want to say something to that? Um about Midwives, I think they are a much better uh, resource for intelligence than soldiers. They go right into the interiors of the Hebrews. Beautiful. Beautiful. If you really want to know what's happening, anybody seen The Handmaid's Tale? Like, If you really want to know what's happening, you got to have somebody in the house. Send in a woman. Send in a woman, right? <laughs> Co-opt the people whose job it is. So when... When you had the situation in Inquisition Spain, who did they rely on during the Inquisition to 
tell on Jews conversos who were secretly doing Jewish ritual. The servants. The servants. That's who you that's who the court dragged in were the people who were serving in Jewish households. Because they know what's happening. They know exactly what's happening. They know if people change their clothes on Friday night into dressier clothes, right? That's a sign that they're Judaizing. So, um, or they change the wicks and the lamps before Friday night at sundown. That's Judaizing. You counted on the servants to be, right, the ones who told. So, So one of the reasons we possibly, right, smart thing to do, go... Go for the folks who are serving the uh, Hebrew women. Okay, so why not? Why not? Uh huh. Another reason to kill the boy that is to prevent the army developing in the future. Good. So you're you're risking adult males who would be able to resist, right? So you castrate the people essentially, right? You know that, that they won't be strong enough to fight back. The other thing is that if there are a, isn't another generation of Hebrew men, who are the Hebrew women going to have babies with? Egyptians. Egyptians. So those babies will be Egyptian. And they'll get all the smartness from the Jewish women. <laughs> they'll get all the smartness from Jewish women. Okay. So, um, but they, but they, presumably women are identified and their children are identified by the males with whom they have children. Um, is what the text might be uh, assuming. But, this is a disjunctive verb, but the midwives feared, remember this is the same word, fear and awe, were in awe of feared Elohim, God. And they did not do what the king of Egypt commanded them, Again, the root is chai. This is a verb. They um, lifened the children, meaning the male children. Right? So again, we get over and over and over and over and over this use of the word life. Yes. Doesn't she, doesn't it indicate that because they're holding God in awe, it makes them sound Jewish? <laughs> <laughs> so it's possible that that this is another indication that they are Hebrew women. Um, it's interesting that it doesn't say yud right? It says Elohim. So possibly God's lowercase g. Um, in any case, it is clear that they are committed out of some idea that this is unethical out of their relationship to something bigger, whether those are Egyptian gods or Elohim, meaning the Hebrew God, some of the commentators want to say, of course, this is God. And these are Hebrew midwives who have been faithful, right? And that proves the people have a relationship to God all through Jacob coming down to now. They've stayed loyal to God. I'm not so sure I buy it, but whatever. Um, So they, but in any case, they have some relationship to something bigger that they are in awe of, meaning they have respect for. And out of that, they do not kill the boy. They allow the boys to live. They enliven the boys. They give life to the boys who should be dead. Right? Okay. So notice what, and that's going to be a little different the next time we see an act of saving the boy. Richard, did you want to say something? I was just going to uh, speculate on the possibility that it seems to me that uh, not having experienced many childbirths myself, but that the whole, but that the whole act all around the world is that there's there's something almost sacral about the moment of birth, regardless mm-hmm. of the gender of the child. Right? I mean, you have holding the baby up display or you know and, and there's great happiness and celebration so it may be that what the midwives are feeling uh well, even though it's being ascribed to god possibly lowercase possibly not is this is just wrong i mean it's just like like who in who in nature would do such a thing kind of you know right 
I mean, that, that may be where the kind of their motivation or, Beautiful. you know, they're, they're, they're going to offend the mother goddess. Yes. The goddess of life, right? The, the, you know, the deity associated with high with life. And over and over and over, that is how we're taught. These women are talked about, but being life givers. And for Rabbi Rami Shapiro, that this whole story for him is about the male here, king, being symbolized um, is a symbol of the ego and power, right? And and the perceptions of power and the midwives are about life, or about being in touch with the feminine life-giving uh, energy and that that's what challenges the ego energy represented by Pharaoh, right? Is the connection to life, to compassion, um, to all those things that would move us to say this is this is absolutely unacceptable and to challenge that authority. It is the women who are doing that. This is the first case in history, uh, in, in Torah history of a uh, defiance of authority and that is by two women. This is the first time we see civil disobedience. It's the first time we see a direct challenge to authority. And it is, uh, it is Shifra and Pua. Um, not only are Shifra and Pua models of how women bonding together can be freedom fighters against an oppressive system, but more generally, the text moves beyond nationalistic concerns to bear witness to the power of faith to transcend ethnic boundaries. Richard, to your point. Um, we have an opportunity in our own time to speak out against injustice, just as the midwives did thousands of years ago. And the mid, as the midwives demonstrated, it doesn't matter how few our numbers, each individual counts in the fight for justice and liberation, right? So an, an early, early, early attestation from our texts about the importance of just two people saying no. It is not that these two people are just two of the many midwives who did this because two people as a midwife couldn't wipe out a boy. Right. So it's possible that that Pharaoh has called Shifra and Pua who are the chief midwives in the Hebrew department. It's possible there was a guild. We know this from the archaeological record. There would have been possibly a guild of midwives and he has called the top ones. Right. So direct your midwives, you two chief midwives, that when the baby's on the birthing stool, if it's a male, kill it. Because it's true. It doesn't make sense that two out of a whole slew of midwives would have made such a difference unless they are the ones in charge of the guild of midwives. OK, so so that's that's the command. Right. That, that's given to them. And so um, the king called for the midwives and said to them, for what reason have you done this thing and let the children live? So Pharaoh has called them to task for the fact that there seems to be baby boys surviving. Oops. Um, right. So now their lives are on the line They're They've been called before the king to account for the fact that they have apparently Den denied a royal decree. That's your life, right? Your D-E-D, -D, right? So, but we are dealing with clever midwives. And what do they say? And they said to Paro, not like Nashim Hamitzriot, not like Egyptian women, Ha'ivriot, are the um, Hebrews. Ki chayot hena. Here's the word again, chai. But what's it being used as here? Chayot. They are like, ki means like, chayot, like beasts. Chaya is animal, beast. So not like Egyptian women are the ivriot. Um, ki chayot hena. They are now. Some, I read one essay that said, this does not mean that they're using this ra racial stereotype and trope against Pharaoh. It means they are life givers. That's why they, that's why the boys are surviving is because we are life givers. We are not like Egyptians who are going to kill baby boys. They are life givers. 
I don't think I buy it. Um, I think this is the clever midwives using Pharaoh's own racism and xenophobia against him. Maybe there's a a pun for the reader to say, right? It's about giving life. That's exactly right. We affirm giving life. They would not take the baby's lives. Right. Okay, we we can get that. But I think the shot, the straight answer to Pharaoh, what they're what they're saying to Pharaoh is about they're not like Egyptian women. These are like these women are like beasts, right? Like we can't get there. Like they're like beasts. Like before we can even get there, they've given birth. Like they just drop them in the field. We hear about it later. Like they just squat and drop them and go back to work. Like they, we can't even get there for the delivery. If only that were the case. If only that were the case, right? Um, so it seems. Explain how I hit my head. <laughs> right, right. Nobody there to catch you. Um, it seems it works because we're not told the women are executed, right? It seems that Pharaoh falls for it. Bayatev, right, Elohim, and God, Bayatev is good to the midwives. Again, this takes us back to the language of Breshit. Everything that God sees in Breshit, God says what? It is tov. It is good. So God, here it's a verb, a causative form of a verb. So God goodifies the midwives, right? The same God who sees that everything is tov, that everything is good. And what happens? Um, the people, as a result, become many and very strong. And since the midwives feared God, what did God do for them? Vaya'aslahem batim. God made them batim. What's batim? Houses. houses. God made them houses. What does that mean? Obviously, God did not turn them into a house. What does this mean? God built them a house. They, they, God, be, God makes them. The, the word is to make. God makes them houses. What does that mean? Dynasties. Beautiful. So, who usually is the one who is the head of a dynasty? Yes. Men. So it is exceptional that they are made into houses. Right. So there is a beautiful midrash that I won't go into, but uh, but that the guards come after the midwives um, to like hunt them down because Pharaoh has not fallen for the ruse and knows they have defied him. And they turn into the pillars of the house. So when the soldiers come in, the soldiers don't see them. They've actually become the beams of the house. so the, the Midrash takes this quite literally. God makes a miracle happen and makes them into the house, the houses, um, so that they are not um, brought uh, before Pharaoh to be punished. Um, but uh, probably this means right they become so successful that they are heads of dynasties. Right? They become very um, successful. So then th- that didn't work. So what does Pharaoh do now? So now Pharaoh talks to his whole um, his whole people, his whole nation, saying, every son that is born, throw him into the Nile. But every daughter, y'all can let live. So now it didn't work with the midwives. So now it's become an edict for everyone in the land to murder. Hebrew baby boys as soon as they're born. So he enlists the help now of the entire Egyptian population. Think of, again, the Inquisition in Spain. Think of Nazi Germany, right? The people are now under pressure to fulfill the will of Pharaoh. And if you don't, you can expect dead now, right? All right. I think it's such... Irony, you know, you think about the laws now. I mean, abortion is exactly the opposite thing, but deputizing, I mean, that's what that's basically what the law is deputizing everybody, everybody to, 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 to do whatever. Yes, 
Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Vigilante mobs, you know, and, and they're commanded to, right? They, they don't have a choice. This is Nazi Germany. If you don't tell about a family hiding Jews, you're dead and your kids are dead, right? And so, so the pressure, right, is on the population to protect themselves and their families by carrying out Pharaoh's orders. All right. So now, um, who, who did Tick, uh, Dr. Tikva Freimerkensky of Blessed Memory points out, who did Pharaoh not care about living? The girls, the daughters. Who mattered to Pharaoh? The sons. Pharaoh ignores the daughters <clears throat> as not a threat and pays attention to the sons. She points out, so who's coming now for Pharaoh? Daughters. You didn't pay attention because you thought they weren't worthy of your attention because they weren't a threat. What is the very next thing we get? A man from the house of Levi went and took a daughter of Levi. What's important is she's a daughter. And this, of course, is the mother of Moses. She gets pregnant and she delivers Ben, a son. She looks at the child and what does she, what does she see? He tov. This is the language of Genesis. This is exactly the language. When God creates the human being, God sees Kitov. Then it's good. Tov ma'od. It's very good. But everything God creates, tov. This is exactly the language used of the daughter who creates a son and notices and sees Kitov. That, that he's good. And so she hid him for three moons. But when she could no longer hide him, she makes him a teva of papyrus. Where is the only other place we see this word in Torah? Noach in Genesis. This is the word that is used for what? Noah builds to survive the flood, to survive the water that would wipe out all life. God has Noah make a teva and God seals Noah into the teva. What happens here in order to save the deliverer of the people from the water that would drown him? She makes, so she's imitating God. Yocheved makes a teva, an ark that will save the life of the one who will save the people. So here, Yocheved, right, is acting just as God did. And she does exactly what God did. She seals it and she seals the baby in the teva and puts the teva by on the bank, on the shore of the Yeor, of the Nile. So the Nile into which baby boys are to be thrown so that they die, she does exactly that. She places him in the Nile, but in a way that he will live. Yes? All right. The Nile, of course, was a god in Egypt. So all of those resonances are here that the deliverer of the Jewish people, the deliverer who will take them out of of Egypt that worships other gods, um, the the deliverer um, is put into a god of Egypt to be consumed, but survives. Why don't they put um, Moses' sister's name here? Right. So we're it, it's very interesting. Who's named at the beginning of Exodus? All of the men who come down. The deliverers, starting at, at at this part of the story, are not named. But those two midwives are named. They are named, but once Moshe is born, the story of Moshe, we do not get the name yet of his mother. We don't get the name of his sister yet. They are unnamed, possibly because 
suggests Tikva Freimarkensky, they are archetypal. These are archetypes and therefore not you know, specific uh, people necessarily, but the, the archetype of, of the, the birther, the mother, the life giver, the archetype of the guardian sister, right? Um, Where's Aaron in all this? We don't, not, not, we don't know anything about Moshe's family. We know nothing. She's a daughter of Levi, and so and the father is Levi. They are both Levi, but that's all we know. We know nothing about what's going on, right? So Vatered bat paro, and so uh, Pharaoh's daughter. Uh, oh, sorry. Um, and his sister stationed herself far enough away, right, that she wouldn't be seen looking after the boy, but she's clearly looking after her baby brother. Then Bat Paro, that's again, she's not named. Yocheved is not named. Miriam is not named. Neither here is the daughter of Pharaoh. She's just, again, a daughter. Bat Paro, we got a daughter who goes from Levi and we get a daughter of Pharaoh. Pharaoh who ignored the daughters is now getting his comeuppance by the daughters. It is very clear. So, um, so it comes down the daughter of Pharaoh, Lirchutz, um, or either she's coming down to wash. That's what it says here. This could be a ritual bathing. The Nile is a god. It is possible the daughter of the king, the daughter of the Pharaoh, who is a god himself in Egypt, she's coming down to participate in some kind of ritual at the edge, um, at, going into the shallow part of the Yor, of the Nile. So we've got the baby who's supposed to be Drown in the Yor there. And now we have um, the daughter of the oppressor coming into that same body of water. This is where they meet, is in this water. What happens? There's so much gorgeous Midrash written about this. Vatere etateva, betochasuf. She sees the teva in the bulrushes or in the suf. And and she sends out her what? Her servant. Amata. Her amat. So her, um, no, actually there's a dogation in this hay. So amata, a, a female servant that belongs to her. And she took it, meaning the teva. The rabbis want to say the word in, in Hebrew for uh, there's a word in Hebrew that um, ama can mean arm. Don't read, she saw the thing and sent her maid to get it. Rather read, she sees the teva and she reaches, but she can't reach it. So God makes a miracle happen and extends her arm far enough that she's able to get hold of the teva and bring it in because she is willing to save to, to, to do something in this moment god makes that happen that this is this is what always happens with human beings we might not be able to do it ourselves but if we are ready to take the first motions towards it god will make the rest happen but we have to reach out our arm even if we think we can't reach the teva and do what we need to do if we just reach far enough God will extend our arm and will make it so that we can do life-saving, miraculous things. Okay. So she, in any case, the Teva is brought either by her arm or by her servant to Bat Paro, to the daughter of Pharaoh, and she opens it, Batira Ehu, and she sees it. What? At Hayeled, the boy. Behine Na'ar. And behold, it's a na'ar, a young male, buche, crying. But tachmol alav. And she mercifies him. So the verb of chemla, actually. So how to translate chemla is an interesting uh, endeavor. Um, and she, she says, this is of the Hebrews, this one. How does she know? Possibly 
what else is a baby boy doing in a basket in the in the Nile? If it's not right, like, like why why would an Egyptian woman put her baby in a thing and put it in the Nile? Possibly. What 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 else might it be? Uh, we have reason to believe Egyptian circumcised. Correct. Um, so chemla. Um, there is a relationship in this word to the idea of waste. One can feel chemla that 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 would be a waste, um, and and it is tied to compassion. Um, so in this case, she the the boy is crying, and she has compassion on it. So what what we had with the midwives is that they had some relationship to some ideal, be it ethics, morals, a religious, whatever. We're told they feared God, and so they saved the, they let the boys live they gave life to the boys what are we told here this is not that this is not some ideal this is she picks up a singular human and it's crying and she responds with chemla and it is that chemla that moves her even though this is a boy from the hebrews Possibly it's how he's swaddled. Possibly it's the fabric used to swaddle him that Hebrews used or a style of swaddling that the Hebrews used that Egyptian women did not. We're not clear, but she identifies this as a Hebrew baby. What should she have done in that moment? Drown him. If she's following her father's orders, she identifies this as a Hebrew boy. Her obligation is to drown him. But it is out of Hamla. It is out of her response to the other, capital O, with Hamla, with compassion, out with to his crying, that, as one of our, our authors said, puts a crack at the heart of the empire of Egypt. One person's response of compassion for the other puts a crack at the heart of the power system of the greatest empire at that point in the history of the world. I think it's also important for them that she's a mother. She's young, she's really young. Uh, because, I mean, I'm sure that they would, that, that she would have her own children. If she was even 16 or something, she'd probably have her own children and everything. But she's, she's, a, she's a kid. Yeah, she's How do we know? How do we know? Who knows? Well, because I, I'm assuming because she doesn't have, they post no mention of the, the truth is we don't know. Yeah. We don't know. She could have seven children. And because of that, she has been a mother and she does understand. And she, <laughs> right. So right, like we, could be ten. she, she could, could be 10, 10 and has, you know, no, well, we have, we have absolutely no indication from the text of her status. Mm -hmm. We have no idea about how old she is. We have no idea about Miriam's status. We have no idea how old she is. Um, no idea. So, um, my, my imagination there, young kids. Right. Yeah. So, it, in a way, that makes it a really powerful story because here are these vulnerable girls who are usually overlooked as having, you know, anything important to do or say, and they are the ones who make it possible. Right. To overturn again, to overturn the empire of Egypt. That's a lovely that's a lovely way to look at it. Possibly, you know, women who have experience in the world of, of children and of being mothers and like refuse to to let this baby go, you know, uncared for. But if she's Moses's sister, she's more likely to be 11 than 17. Possibly. We really don't know. So um, but however we want to imagine it, they. So, so, but par o, like she's she sees that it's a boy and she is moved, and what happens right after that? But she hasn't done anything yet. She's got the boy. She sees that it's an a Hebrew baby. What she's supposed to do is throw it in the Nile. Throw it in the Nile. She hasn't done anything. And what happens? We're at this suspenseful moment. Bah, 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 because we know the story. We read right over that. This is an important moment. She's holding the baby. What's going to happen? 
What happens is the sister speaks to the daughter of Pharaoh. Shall I call Lach for you? Isha Mianeket, a a a um a woman who is uh lactating, thank you, Mina Ivriot from the Hebrews, right? And she got to nurse him as a as a wet nurse for him, right? Who does she get? Uh, no, sorry, she says, I'll go, shall I get a nursing woman from the Hebrews for you that she can nurse the child? We're waiting for the answer. I'm going to run and get a Hebrew who's lactating for you to nurse the child. What has Miriam just done? How did she save the child? She just brokered an adoption. She just told Bat Paro, let me fetch Amina Yeket for you. Because it's your baby that that needs to be nursed. Miriam has put the idea in Bat Paro's head. We don't know that it wasn't there before, but she has articulated it. She's put it out there. She's made it real in the world. This is your baby. Let me go get a nursemaid for it. Right? And Vatomer Labat Paro. And now here's the suspense. It's building. It's like, what's she going to do? Go. Go. Right? Get. Yes. Go get, you know, a, a nursemaid to, to nur- or have someone nurse him. She, she sends the boy with the baby with the sister and have someone nurse him for me. And I will pay. Right? Schar. I, I will reward you. And so the woman took the child and she nursed him. And what we what we know is that she took it's Yocheved who becomes his mother. I mean, becomes his nursemaid. Vaigdala Yelen, and the boy grows. But to be the Bat Paro, and she brings him to Bat Paro. To the daughter of Pharaoh, Vayihila Levin, so he became to her a son. So this probably means he was weaned. He's with Yocheved until he's weaned. Then he's brought to Bat Paro, to the palace, right? To become to her a son. Batikrashmo, and she called his name Moshe. Vatomer Kimin Hamayim Mishitihu. She calls him Moshe, for from the water, I drew him. So what's his name before this? Nick says. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So what is his name before this? what, What age are babies weaned in the ancient world? Three or four. 30. No, thirty is when Jewish boys are we currently, if ever. Yes, exactly. Uh, so, um, so um, he's weaned. We can we can imagine around three or four. So, what does she call him? Like we, yellow boy, Jody. I don't know that answer. She said to the Pharaoh, shall I get a Hebrew woman to nurse him? No, she doesn't say that to Pharaoh. She says it to Miriam. Miriam says it to the oh, daughter. Okay. Okay. I was yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Right? Okay. She because knew. she knew. Yeah, she knew his mother. All right, but. There's no indication that she tells her father what's going no, on. No, no. We have absolutely no idea. So he, he's three or four. He's brought to the palace to be her son. What does she say to Pharaoh? I did it. She admits she took him out of the war. Now, does she? She does anything. Well, there's the prince nothing all of a sudden. In the palace, we have no pregnancy. Exactly. Boom. Immaculate conception. Immaculate conception. 
says Jody. Different Bible, different story, different religion. Um, but clearly someone had that idea, uh, right? Um, so so we don't we don't know um what she says, but what, what we know is that we have this conspiracy of Hamla. We have a conspiracy of compassion between the midwives, Miriam, the do- right, the daughter of Paro, and Yocheved, right? So we have a birth mom who is willing to give up her child in order to hope that there is someone downstream who will take compassion on him. Imagine that moment, if you will. I, as an adoptee, imagine it all the time when I read this story. Um, knowing that my birth mother did the same thing, gave away her infant, hoping somebody would have Kemla for the baby and therefore give it a life. And, right? Yay! Uh, right? And then we have Bat Paro, who sees an infant that is not only not hers, but but an infant she's supposed to revile. And she is willing to accept this infant as her own child. And it is in that moment of accepting him as her own that he becomes the deliverer right, of, of the Hebrews. So one of the things Dr. Reimer Kensky points out is that notice Moshe is not named you could see it as he's not named for himself. He's named for what but Paro does, not what she feels, what she does. She doesn't name him mercy. She doesn't name him love. She doesn't name him compassion. She doesn't name him for what she feels. She names him for what she does. But Feimer Kensky also points out that Tut Moses, we have that name attested in the archaeological record. Moses can mean son. It's about the relationship of a son. Son of Tut is Tut Moses. So we could understand it that way, that it's going to be her son. She names him Moses. But it's the it's not the passive participle. It's the active participle. And therefore, um, it's about... Freimer Kensky says, what he will be, what he will do, he will become the one who was drawn from the water will become Moshia, Moshe, Moshia. He will become the savior by drawing his people through the water. He will, just as she has liberated him and given him life by Moshe, by drawing him out, so will he become Moshiach. He will be the one to save his people by drawing them and giving them life as a people by drawing them through the water. David? Yeah. And there's also like a touch of tragedy about it because, because Moshe doesn't, his life is he's not his own. And he, you know, you think about what's going to happen from here on, that his, he's, um, he's a prisoner of his destiny, really, you know, and and there's nothing to do about it. Like, well, so so two ways of looking at that. People always said to me, oh, you know, wow, don't, don't you feel so sad? You don't know your birth family and you don't know where you come from and you're, you're, you're kind of trapped in what you got adopted into. So that's one way to look at it. But I can tell you from my own experience, that's not how I experience it. I experience it as my birth identity was one thing. What I did with... What I, the family I was drawn into is something else. So, so that's exactly what happens for Moshe. He's born into one reality. He's adopted into another. And both are critical for his story, for who he becomes. So he, you could say he's a victim of fate, but aren't we all? The families we're born into, where we're born, you, who what, who was doing the research that said what what determines most about your longevity is what your zip code is that you're born into. So, like in that sense, we're all victims of fate. Um, and Moshe's story is, but we have agency, 
And that's the for me the beauty of the whole story. It's why I really wanted to read it because I needed to study it again. I wanted to study it with y'all because that's how we often feel right now. We feel helpless. And we feel like there's nothing we can do. There's so much going on that is out of our control. We feel manipulated. We feel like we can be victims of fate. And this story is suggesting it doesn't take you doing everything. It, it means you do one thing and you have no idea the impact of that. This brief moment, writes Maurice Harris in his book um, about Moshe. Um, remember that book that I told you about, that wonderful book? Um about Moshe the stranger. In the brief moment described in the verse about the daughter of Paro, the most powerful emperor in the world, when she stood face to face with an abandoned Hebrew baby boy condemned to die by her father's order, the seed of the overthrow of four centuries of slavery was planted. In the time it took for one young woman's heart to feel a pulse of compassion strong enough to evoke action, the gods of Egypt fell. And the God of Israel entered the drama of history on the world stage as the champion of the oppressed. The revolution was born in the most unlikely of places inside his unnamed daughter's heart. This is the task, right? This can we keep our hearts open, right? Can we stay open? Can we stay present to that Kemla? that leads to one act. We never know what act it is that will do exactly what happens here, right? Putting a crack at the heart of, of the, the empire of evil um, as, as we understand this text. Um, I'm going to give you something to take home. I know we're, we're done in terms of um, what we can spend time on. Um, and so uh, I'll leave you um, with, again, um, words from Maurice Harris. The story of Batya, of, of Pharaoh's daughter, teaches something perhaps even more powerful than what he said before, which I'll give you to take home. The impression we get from the text is that Batya had most likely lived well within the privileged bubble of the royal court, and that her decision to rescue the Hebrew baby was a purely spontaneous act of compassion. The implication is that even without an organizing effort by a committed resistance movement, the system can't prevent all possible things that can happen to undermine its grip on power. There really is a crack, or more likely cracks, in everything. And some of the cracks are close to the center of power. Try to control every human heart to seal off the possibility of love weeding its way somehow to the surface. It's beyond any system's capacity of control. Let us trust that. Let us trust that if we do the work of staying open and tenderizing the heart uh, of being um, people of compassion who are ready to take action out of that compassion, that we uh, too can topple systems of injustice and um, ones that um, empower evil. We we have to believe it's possible. Um, so maybe. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.